Let's pray. Father, we come to you as our loving, gracious, kind Father. And we come and we ask, Lord, that you would help us as we study your word, that you would cause its truths uh, to challenge us, uh, but also, Lord, that you would set before us Christ in a greater clarity, and that because of seeing Jesus through the gospel of Mark, that our love to him would soar, and that our obedience to him would be more earnest and more joyful. And Father, we ask that you would have your way in this meeting this morning, and Lord, that your spirit would be operative among us. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we come this morning uh, to chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 20 all the way down through verse 35. Now, I confess that's a large section, 16 verses, so I'll, it will certainly uh, take us a few weeks uh, to get through it all. But let me just remind you of what you already know. Our objective is not to just get through the Gospel of Mark. Right? Our objective is to know Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. We want to know Jesus. We want to know Him through His Word, so that we'll love Him more and live more joyfully under His sovereign Lordship. That's our target, and it's worth repeating. We want to know Jesus better through His Word, so that we'll love Him more and live more joyfully under His sovereign Lordship. And that's really the Christian's great ambition And that's what our study of the Gospel of Mark is all about. And we're convinced that as we study this book of the Bible, each one of us are being brought face to face every Sunday with the living God. When you go to the Word of God, you are encountering the living God. And so, when we come to the Gospel of Mark, we are seeing Jesus Christ in HD, as it were. We're all brought every week, every morning you read your Bible, we're all brought face to face with the living God. And here's the point of our text this morning, and it's something I want you to know up front. You cannot encounter the living God and come away unchanged. You cannot come face to face with God in His Word and walk away unchanged. That's exactly what our text teaches us this morning. Whenever you encounter Jesus through His Word, you will respond. You must respond. It's inevitable. You have to respond. And you'll either respond... One of two ways, essentially. One, you will respond in faith. You'll believe Him and you'll bow to Him as Lord and you will follow Him in loyal, joyful obedience. Or, response number two, is you will respond to Him in some form of unbelief. Either a a civilized 
sort of friendly unbelief that tries to bring Jesus under control and subjugate him to your standards of what Jesus ought to be like. Or you'll respond in a hostile unbelief that dismisses Jesus as a liar and a fraud. And those are the options. You either will respond to Jesus by confessing him as Lord, or you'll respond to him in unbelief and call him a lunatic or a liar. At least those are the options we're, giving, we're given in this passage. And my aim in studying these verses with you over the next few weeks is to hopefully convince you that the only fitting response to Jesus is to bow to Him as Lord and to continually bring your life under subjection to His demands. That's my aim. Now, I know most of you don't need to be convinced of that, uh, but some of you do. And my hope is that as we're working through this, you will see Jesus with greater clarity and you will respond to Him. If you're already His, you will respond to Him with greater zest, greater energy, greater resolve to be His faithful, loving servant. And if you have not responded to Him in loving loyalty, my prayer is that you would by the end of this sermon series. Not because my preaching is so wonderful, but because this text is so powerful. And that's what I want you to see. So before we get into the text, why don't you stand with me, and we'll read it together. Mark 3, and we'll start reading in verse 20, and make our way all the way down to verse 35. And he, Jesus, came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first bids the strong man, or binds rather, the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because, they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. You be seated. It's a long text full of responses 
uh, to Jesus Christ. And we're going to make our way this morning. We'll be in verse 20 and 21, and we'll slowly make our way through the text. But before we get into verse 20 and 21, I want to set the context for you a bit. In the past few chapters, we've seen that on the, on the one hand, the opposition to Jesus and his ministry is on the rise. We've seen that from the religious elites, the leaders of the people of Israel. They are seeing Jesus' ministry and opposing him. The culmination of that hostility, of course, is chapter 3 and verse 6, where we see that they finally come together with the Herodians, the political movers and shakers, and they plot to end Jesus' life. Now, Jesus, of course, knows what's coming. But even as the hostility is on the rise against Jesus, so is his popularity. And it's remarkable. The fame of Jesus continues to spread even though the religious leaders are trying to suppress him. His popularity skyrockets. People from all over really the ancient world are flocking to see Jesus from every nation and tongue. And of course, this sort of popularity would have only served to inflame the jealousy and the rivalry of the religious leaders. And so it sort of fans into flame the hostility and the plan to end Jesus' life. Now Jesus, we know, is aware of all of this. We spent the past few weeks looking at that. Jesus is aware that his end is coming soon. He's about a year out from it, a year and a half. And so knowing that he's about to die, and he knows he's going to rise from the dead, and then he knows that he's going to ascend to heaven, he appoints 12 men who will be his uh, representatives on earth. They will be his ambassadors, officially designated as his representatives. And that's what we saw in Mark 3, starting at verse 13, all the way to verse 19. Now, according to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Immediately after Jesus appoints the twelve, he calls them over onto a hillside, and then he calls the crowds to himself, and he delivers what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Right? In Mark, if you look at verse 19, that's the conclusion of the call of the apostles. And then verse 20, there is no Sermon on the Mount inserted in there. Mark just sort of jumps over the Sermon on the Mount altogether. And if you recall Mark's purpose in writing the gospel, that will make sense to you. Remember, Mark is a gospel of action. Right? He's very brief. He's, very, he's all about immediately Jesus did this thing or that thing. He's very much focused on the life of Jesus. He doesn't record long teaching, uh, long sermons, long teachings of Jesus. He does record some, but not to the extent that Matthew and Luke do. Mark is really about, hey, look at this man. Right? He sort of takes us by the hand and walks us through the life of Jesus. And his goal is that by the end of you seeing all that Jesus was doing, that you will concur or agree with the centurion in Mark 15, verse 39, that you will see Jesus and you will by the end of it say, truly, this was the Son of God. That's Mark's approach. He wants you to see Jesus and respond by bowing to Him and confessing Him as Lord. 
So for that reason, Mark just sort of throws out the Sermon on the Mount altogether. Now, let me just say this. What we have in the Gospels are four eyewitness accounts or based on eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And that's a good thing. Right? We, we have different views uh, that show us different angles of the life of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, lots of teaching. Mark, lots of life. And praise God, we have each gospel. But Mark just jumps right over it and gets straight into this episode that spans verse 20 all the way down to verse 35, where all the people who have seen Jesus are now brought to a reckoning. They've seen His life. They've seen Him teach. They've heard Him teach. They've seen Him in life. And now, everyone who has seen Him and knows anything of Him has to come to a place of response. It's a reckoning, really. That's what this verse, this series of verses are. It's a reckoning with the person of Jesus Christ. So, that's our context. And then in verse 20, we're told, at some point, after Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount and done a lot of other ministry, verse 20, He makes His way home. He came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. It's a pretty good crowd, or a pretty small home. But the idea here is probably that Jesus and the apostles are so busy with serving these people who have come to them. They're serving them, they're ministering to these people, and they're so busy with it that they don't even have time to stop and eat. It's most likely what he's talking about. It could be, though, that the crowds have sort of flocked in and are filling the home to such an extent that they can't even get themselves into the kitchen you know, to get bread. Because I mean, people are everywhere. And we know they're coming because they've heard Jesus teach. They've heard Him preach. They've seen Him heal people who have been sick for years, decades. They've seen Him exercise absolute authority over demonic powers, even over men. He has this sway over men. When He says, follow me, they just are compelled to follow Him. They've watched Him, heard Him, seen Him unilaterally forgive men of their sins. Only God can do that. But here's a man who is doing that. And they've also heard his claims to be God. And they've watched him interact with the most erudite, brilliant religious leaders of the day. And they've seen Jesus interact with these men and make them look like schoolboys. And everyone is asking, who is this? Who is this man? We have never seen anything like this. Jesus' ministry had become so influential, so powerful. And really, the claims that Jesus was making were so great that everyone around was now being forced to draw a conclusion about who He was. And while we're not told what the opinion of the crowd that was swarming His house was, we don't know, We are given the assessment of a particular group of people. This is what they thought. Verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, 
He has lost his senses. It's the estimation of his own people that he's lost his mind. Now, who are these people? Well, literally, they are those from his side. This was a common idiom in Greek that referred to one's family, friends, or close associates. Which is why the ESV translates this as his family. Of course, they're right to do so. And I, I think not just because it's an idiom, but because of what happens all the way down in verse 31. All right, this is actually a, a pretty interesting literary phenomenon. It's really interesting what Mark is doing here. Uh, it's one of the common features of Mark's gospel. is that he will start a story like he does in verse 20 and 21. All right, verse 20 and 21 seem to work perfectly together. And then he will interrupt that story for a few verses with a very similar account that teaches a very similar lesson. The technical word for that, if you're curious, is called an intercalation. All right? It'll be on the quiz. An intercalation. And that's what verses 22 all the way down to verse 30 are. It's just an inset into the story. It's a parallel account which reports the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 22 to 30. We'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Uh, But it's a report about the unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees. And while the scribes respond harshly, Jesus and his family, or Jesus' family rather, they don't respond harshly. Their kind of unbelief is a much more gracious, gentle type of unbelief. However, what Mark is trying to convey here by putting this story of the Pharisee or the scribe's response paralleled with Jesus' family, what he's saying is both are wicked unbelief. Both are bad. Both are false, wrong responses to Jesus. Now let me show you what I'm talking about here. So if you read verse 21 and take out verses 22 to 30, the story could go on interrupted. So look, verse 21. When his people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Now jump down to verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. Verse 21, they went out to take custody. Verse 31, they arrive. You see that? They arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. In verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So the question is, who are these people who are close to him, his own people? Well, it seems like from this passage, the context would say, it's Mary and Jesus' brothers. Now that's striking. There's no mention of his dad. Joseph's not mentioned, probably because he's already dead. I believe that's the best guess. Because Joseph is not mentioned after the birth narratives. But his, mo- his mother and his brothers are at least mentioned. And they're concerned to the extent that they travel 30-something miles from Nazareth, where they probably live. They travel the 30 miles all the way to Capernaum to investigate. To figure out what is going on with Jesus. They're hearing these reports about their son, about their brother, their half-brother really. And they're concerned. 
Now, I want to make a caveat here. First, let's think about Mary. I, I think Mary's concern is primarily not that Jesus has lost his mind. Now, hopefully I can show you what I mean by that. I think Mary's main concern is that the magnitude of Jesus' ministry is beginning to exhaust Jesus. She's, I'm, I'm assuming, I, I think, and this is based on my reading of this text, she is thinking that Jesus needs to be reined in a bit because he's going to exhaust himself. I don't think that Mary thinks Jesus is crazy. I don't think that. I think her concern is not that Jesus has lost his mind, but that he's overworking. He doesn't even have time to eat. Now, what mother is concerned about her son when he doesn't have time to eat? Right? You go home from college, and that's all your mom wants you to do is eat. Right? Moms are concerned with diets because they love their children. And I think this is what's going on with Mary. And the reason I say this is because what we see of Mary throughout the Bible is that she always responds in faith to the Word of God. And we see that she believed the promise about her son, the virgin birth. She believed that from the very beginning. When God promised her that this child would be the Savior of the sins of His people, Mary believes. She trusts. And throughout the New Testament, as this plan is unfolding, Mary is said to be diligently treasuring all of these things in her heart. That's Luke 2, 19, and then Luke 2, verse 51. So Mary, at least from from the New Testament, we see that Mary's response to God was one of faith and trust. She was not sinless. She was not a sinless mother. She had a sinless son, but she was not a sinless mother. But we don't have any real grounds to think that she was faithless to the point of thinking Jesus had lost his mind. So then the question is, okay, what's going on here? Why, is, why does the text say that those close to him called him, thought he was crazy? Well, I think it's primarily talking about his brothers. Scripture is clear that Jesus' brothers did not believe him. They didn't believe him. John 7, 5 is explicit that they did not believe that Jesus was who his mom said he was and who Jesus claimed to be. They were unbelieving. We know he had four brothers, which were really half-brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. This is from Mark 6, verse 3. And he also had at least two sisters, because they're spoken of in the plural. We don't know anything about these sisters, but we are made aware that Jesus' four brothers did not believe him. They didn't believe him until after the resurrection. When we get to Acts 1, which we will at the end of the sermon, we see that they have repented and are believing on Christ. So here, at this point in the story, the brothers are unconvinced by Jesus' claims. And so their assessment is, verse 21, that he has lost his senses. Literally, he's out of his mind. He's beside himself. Maybe it's because he's been working too hard. Maybe it's because of the pressure, the stress of his ministry. Who knows? But their evaluation is that Jesus has lost his mind, and it's leading him 
to make some extraordinary claims about himself and to live in a very unconventional way. No one lives like this. No one is constantly around crowds and constantly teaching and preaching and doing all the things that Jesus was doing. And it seems like the brothers are somewhat embarrassed by the report they receive. And so they get the report in Nazareth. They come to Capernaum. And verse 21 says that their objective is to take Jesus into custody. Now you see that in the text. They wanted to take him into custody or to seize him. So my best sort of synopsis of what's going on here is that the brothers are are intent on seizing their crazy brother Jesus and restraining him. And Mary is concerned about him and she's with them and she travels with them. That's my best synopsis. But at any rate, the family thinks Jesus has lost his mind. That's their response. That's their evaluation, their estimation is that Jesus has lost his mind. So verse 21, they come and they want to take custody of him. Krateo, which means to seize or take control of someone by mastery. It's essentially the word used to describe an arrest. They want to take him into protective custody. They come to Jesus... They want to remove him from this situation. The crowds are everywhere. The reports are going out. And they just want to get Jesus out of this situation because, I think primarily because it's reflecting poorly on their family. It's an honor-shame culture. To put it another way, these brothers perceive Jesus to be somewhat of a loose cannon. And he's bringing some shame on their family. And their ambition is to get him under control. That's their objective, to domesticate Jesus, to come by their own authority and to master him and to put the chains around him, really the chains of their opinion, as it were, around him and say, Jesus, we know you're special. We've never seen you sin. We know that. They're probably a little bitter about that too. Um, We've seen you. You're the perfect child. You're the golden boy. We know that. But you've gone too far here. And our, our intention in coming here is to bring you down and domesticate you and subjugate you a little bit. And it's really a, a sort of gentle way of unbelief. They're not as harsh as the Pharisees. They don't say he has a demon. They say, oh, this is weird. right? He, he, this is so strange. We don't know what he's doing We know he's not demonic. He must have just lost his mind. And this is one of the ways we respond to Jesus in the 21st century. It's a gentle way of unbelief. You don't cut yourself off from him. You don't toss him aside outright. But you try to do exactly what Jesus' brothers did here. You try to subdue Jesus and get him under your control. You try to domesticate him into the sort of Jesus that is respectable and unoffensive by 21st century standards. I know Jesus said this, but, you know, it was a long time ago and things have changed a lot. 
You, you try to bring Jesus under your sovereignty so that he doesn't embarrass you. And there are a number of ways, really, that we can try and tame Jesus or domesticate him to make him more palatable for us and for our, our friends. But let me just give you four. I think I have four. And all of these start with M for your convenience. The first way that we try, we respond rather like Jesus' brothers. We try to domesticate Jesus. The first way that people do this is that they try to mute Jesus' claims to be God. That sounds crazy. A man who claims to be God. And so what do we do? Well, or what do they do? Hopefully you're not doing that. But what people do when they're offended by Jesus' claims to divinity is they try to mute those claims. Here's what I mean by that. When you read the Bible, there are a number of theological realities that play very loudly on the pages of Scripture. The deity of Christ is one of those truths. It's unmistakable that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. It's, it's everywhere, it's clear, it's present. Yet one of the ways that people who are embarrassed about Jesus' claims to be God, one of the ways they respond and try to get him under control, is that they try to lower the volume on these passages that declare and scream the deity of Christ. Let me just give you a few of those. In John 1, and I'm going to list them pretty quickly, you can write them down. In John 1, verse 14, John 17, verse 5, and Isaiah 42, 8, we see that Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, possessed and shared in a glory that was unique to God. God says, Isaiah 42.8, I give my glory to no man. Yet Jesus in John 17 says he shares and partakes with the glory of the Father. John 1, verses 1 to 3, Jesus is credited with the work of creation. That's a work that only God himself can do. And, and literally, that John 1 and Genesis 1 are parallel. John 1 is clearly echoing Genesis 1. And the verb used, that God created the heavens and earth, the verb is only ever used with God as the subject. God is the only one who can barah. He's the only one who can create in the sense of Genesis 1. And Jesus, in John 1, is credited with that same power. Hebrews 1, 6, Matthew 2, 2, Matthew 14, Philippians 2, Revelation 5. There's a lot of these. Jesus receives worship. You don't worship men. But Jesus is worshipped. In John 14, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray to him. You don't pray to men. John 14, 14, Jesus instructed them to pray to him. Flip over with me to John I just want to show you something really quickly. Now, I could go on. There are, there are I mean, ample texts you could go to to demonstrate the deity of Christ, that he is God. But it's clear by the way that people responded and the claims that Jesus made himself that he is God. John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, the Jews knew exactly what he meant. Look at the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? 
And notice their response in verse 33. Jesus answered him, or the Jews answered him rather, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The people around Jesus in the first century, they knew what he was claiming to be. And for that claim, he was crucified. Now on top of all of that, you could go through the New Testament and see that Jesus demonstrates or manifests all the attributes, the divine perfections of God. He is eternal. He is glorious. He is holy. He is immutable. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Immutability, unchangeableness cannot be said of any man. God alone is unchanging, eternally so. But Jesus is also unchanging. Jesus is self-existence. He has His life from within Himself. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. Now we can go on and on and on. The point being, you can't turn that down. You can't turn it down. It screams so loud off the pages of Scripture that there's no way to get around that Jesus is truly God. However, if you are embarrassed by that claim enough, there is one way to get around it. You can just take your Bible and start ripping out pages. And that's actually what they do in many seminaries, uh, many, acad- uh, many schools of theology. They're on the quest to find what they call the historical Jesus. What they mean by that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, poor guys, they did the best they could, but all they could capture for us was the footprints of Jesus. Now we're left to sort of recreate the body, who he really was. So what they do is they, they throw out most of the claims that Jesus made of himself and the apostles made that Jesus was God. They throw those out and they sort of recast Jesus into a new image. What's fascinating and really uh, indicting about the whole movement really is that one of their own uh, men within the movement who wrote the, really the history of the quest for the historical Jesus He said what all of these men have done is as they've thrown out Scripture, what they've done is they've remade Jesus into their own image. And it's like they're looking down into a deep well and they're trying to find, okay, what was Jesus like in history with no Bible? And they see at the bottom of that well a reflection of themselves. And so Jesus ends up looking just like the 19th, 20th, 21st century liberal theologian. Do you see that what they're doing is they're trying to domesticate him and make him into their own image. They're trying to throw the chains of their opinion around him and mute him, calm him down, and bring him down to a level that is palatable for our current climates. So you can mute Jesus' claims to divinity. But as soon as you do that, you are exalting yourselves, yourself above him, and you will inevitably be left with a Jesus made in your own image. And that's a Jesus that doesn't save. You don't want a Jesus that way. Now, in one sense, it's easy for us to pick on liberal theologians. But the reality is that as you depart, as you, as an individual, you in the pew, as you depart anywhere from what God has said in his word, as you exit and say, ah, it says that, but I really like it this way or that way, As soon as you do that, you are trying to domesticate Jesus 
to wrest him out of the pages of Scripture and to make him into an image more like yourself than the living God. And what you do when you do that is you exalt yourself above Christ and you are now His master. And you tell Him what He should and should not say. Jesus, that's a little harsh. Tone it down here. And you're doing nothing more than wrapping Him in the handcuffs of your own opinion. That's one way to domesticate Him. But there's a second way, which inevitably it's the result of the first And that way is to moralize Jesus. You can mute his claims to divinity, which will inevitably lead you to moralizing him. He's no longer God. He's no longer has an authority over you. He's just a great example. Great example. He was selfless. He cared for the poor. We should be like him because he was good and upright and moral. That's one way of domesticating Jesus. But I think of all the critiques of that sort of moralizing of Jesus... C.S. Lewis's critique is the most profound, and you probably are all aware of it. I think I've even referenced it once before in this series on Mark. C.S. Lewis was dealing with this moralizing tendency where you just try to moralize Jesus and make him a good teacher and a good person, and he wrote a pretty scathing critique. This is what he said. It's in his book called Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And that's this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is, said Lewis, the one thing we must never say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg Or else, he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to do so. You can mute him. You can moralize him. Third, you can mold him into your own image. You want to domesticate Jesus, make him a little more palatable? One way that people tend to do this is by molding him into your own image. Now that sounds a lot like point one and point two, but it's a little different than, than those, and it's different in this way. It has no, nothing to do with Scripture, and you're not trying to do an academic quest. You're essentially just viewing Jesus as your homeboy. That's the way that it was put for a long time. You're just seeing Jesus as my friend, right? Jesus is my friend. He can be for me whatever I want him to be. He's kind of like a, you know, a charm, I, you know, a rabbit's foot I wear around my neck. He will be whatever I want him to be for me. And what you do there is that you, you make Jesus into your own image. You become the potter and he becomes the clay. And, and it really reverses the very point of sanctification in Christianity. Right? We believe that our objective is to become more and more like whom? Like Christ. But what this tendency is, is it's to remake Jesus into my image. Where I'm now in charge. This is putting the chains, putting Jesus, bringing him under 
custody. It's a way of toning him down. But we know that will never work. You can't, if you do that, you lose the saving blessing and benefit of Christ. You can't make him into your own image. Alas, there's a fourth way you can try to tone Jesus down. And that's by diluting him or mixing him in with other religions. Have you seen this? Where you take Jesus, you know, Jesus on his own is a little strong. But if we mix him with a little bit of Buddhism, now that's palatable. And really, this is what the first century, this is what the Jews tried to do. Uh, And Jesus wasn't having that. They wanted to just sort of mix Jesus in with their apostate representation of Jewish religion, Judaism. But Jesus was explicit about this and repudiated any attempts to mix him in with other religions or philosophies. We saw that in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, where Jesus made it clear that the gospel could not be mixed with other systems. It would be like, he said, taking a new piece of cloth and sewing it onto an old garment to patch a hole. Whenever the new piece shrinks, it leaves an even bigger Whole. And the point there is that you can't take Jesus and mix him with any other system. It just doesn't work. You can't mix the pure gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone with a works-based system. Scripture is clear that the religions that have flocked or emerged in the world, are, they're called doctrines of demons. We don't believe that they're just... Different ways of thinking about the world. They are that indeed. But there is only one true way to to the Lord, to God. And that is through Jesus Christ. All these other ways will lead you on the highway to hell, as it were. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the way. I'm the only way. There's no other way. You can't mix me in with these other views. Jesus will not be deluded by other systems. Now, there's another way that we can mix Jesus in and try to dilute him a bit, and that is we try to mix him in with the endless psychological theories that are churned out of universities. It's integrationism or an eclectic approach to counseling. What they try to do, and and I think um, lovingly so, but it's erroneous, they try to blend a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Freud. If we tone down Jesus a bit, we can mix him into our secular theory, and then we can put a Christian label on it and call it Christian psychology. The problem with that is that Jesus has given us a complete world system. He's given us a complete worldview, a way of seeing and making sense of the world and dealing with our problems. Jesus' word is a sufficient word. A system that doesn't need the insights from Sigmund Freud or Carl Rogers or Oprah or Dr. Phil or pick your TV psychologist. The gospel of Christ and the word of Christ is sufficient for God's people. In any attempt, loving, if your intentions are good, I mean, I think Jesus' brothers, 
You know, they might have had it, their intentions might have been good in the sense that they were just trying to restrain Jesus and calm him down a little bit because he seems like he's lost his mind. It doesn't matter your intentions. If you try to mix Jesus in with another system, you're inevitably deluding him. You can't mix him in with something without his gospel and his word being diluted. Jesus plus any other system equals nothing. Jesus plus any other system equals nothing. And just remember, and you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but a watered-down Jesus is no good for anybody. You, you can't water him down. You can't domesticate him. You can't mute his claims to deity or moralize him without losing all of his saving benefits. Well, these are just a few ways to domesticate Jesus, mute him, moralize him, mold him into your image, and then mix him in with other systems. But none of these, none of these ways of domesticating Jesus, none of them are new. None of them are new. There is nothing new under the sun. They all existed in seed form in the way that Jesus' brothers responded to him. That's what I want you to see. This is exactly what Jesus' brothers are trying to do. They like him, but he's just going a little too far. So we're just going to rein him back, calm him down. And any time you try to do that, who is the authority? You are. If you try to rein Jesus back, Jesus is here and you're here. Oh, he meant well when he said that. He doesn't need your patronizing, to quote C.S. Lewis, nonsense. He doesn't need that from you. He is God. He is who he is. And the brothers of Jesus were the representations of responding to him in in a gentle sort of belief that tries to domesticate him and make him a little bit more under control. The problem, of course, is that to try and tone Jesus down for any reason at all is to make him into something other than he actually is. To blend his teaching with secular psychology or theology is to lose Jesus. To try and dilute him, to make his claims more palatable, it's atrocious. It's atrocious. It's heinous. And it's an act of arrogance, really. And actually, to put it in context, Mark 3, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Because you can't modify Jesus' teaching or remove any aspect of it without saying that Jesus was wrong in some respect. When you do that, you are effectively summoning Jesus to the courtroom of your own opinion. And you are declaring yourself to be the authority over him. And the very act, that very act of you evaluating Jesus, you hear Jesus is here, that very act is saying something about God. It's blasphemous because you have brought him down and you've exalted yourself above him. And that really is the blasphemy that Jesus' own family committed here. They exalted themselves and they accused Jesus of being a form of a lunatic, being crazy, out of his mind. That's the blasphemy. Now, that's a serious crime. 
It's a serious crime. However, the beauty of this passage is that such a heinous crime is also utterly forgivable. It's forgivable. Look at verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. That is startling. It's startling. Now, we usually jump down to the next verse and we're all panicky and scared and we miss this wonderful promise. The brothers here didn't commit the sin that he's going to reference in the next verse. The Pharisees did that. These brothers committed a serious sin. They were blaspheming the Son of God. Yet, all manner of sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. In other words, and this is good news for us, there is forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness for those who've tried to domesticate Jesus. There's forgiveness. There's pardon for those who have tried to form Jesus into their own image. And that is what we see really in the life of Jesus' brothers. Their unbelief initially was strong. We see that in John 7. But after the resurrection, something happens to these blaspheming brothers. Would you flip over there with me to Acts 1? I just want you to see this and then we'll be done. Whatever blasphemies they utter shall be forgiven the sons of men. Acts 1.14, all these with one accord, referring to the eleven apostles, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's amazing. His brothers. Apparently, after the resurrection, they realized that Jesus was not so crazy. <laughs> he was really all that he claimed to be. And what's striking to me is 1 Corinthians 15, 7. says that James, who was probably the oldest of Jesus' younger brothers, he was the first to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Of course, he appeared to the ladies and the other apostles. But as far as his brothers go, James is mentioned as one of the first ones to whom Jesus appears. And you imagine who thinks they're crazy now. right? Who's crazy now? James. And James is struck. And he repents. And he becomes the prominent leader of the Jerusalem church. He even leads the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, and eventually writes the book that bears his name, the New Testament book of James. Former blasphemer turned true brother. And friends, that tells us that there is no sin that is unforgivable in this regard. If you have sought to recast, remake Jesus into your own image, if you have responded in unbelief to Him, you can turn. You can change. Today is the day of salvation. You can return to Him. You can turn to Him 
Stop calling him crazy. Stop trying to domesticate him to fit your ideas of what Jesus should be. And bow to him. Bow to him just as he calls us to in verse 35. Mark 3 verse 35. For whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. True brotherhood is bowing to Jesus as Lord. And friends, there is hope today for you. May the Lord help us all to not label Jesus as a little off, but humbly come and submit ourselves to Him as the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess we have often faltered at some of the commands and the claims of our Lord from His Word. And so, Lord, we thank You that You forgive blasphemers. You forgive those who for years opposed Christ and responded in unbelief to Him. You pardoned them just as You did the brothers of our Lord. And You transformed them into leaders in the church and instruments into Your hands that are faithful and fruitful. And so, Lord, we pray that You would help us as a church Uh, to not exalt ourselves above our Lord Jesus, but to humbly come under Him and, and love Him, see Him in His glory and love Him and live earnestly and joyfully for Him with the one lives that You've given us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.